Even look at me wrong? If you do one thing that I find weird, which is, you know, like your middle name, see? You're doing it right now. Can you act like a human boy for one podcast? <laughs> that was very enjoyable. Wonderful. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm producer Ben. Now, normally, normally is a podcast where we talk about directors' filmographies, right? Yes, correct. You look at these creators, right? Hollywood issues them a blank check. They're like, you did a good job. Now keep doing that. Make us money, right? Yes. They get money for their passion projects. So far, 100% true. Uh-huh. Now, sometimes, sometimes these projects, they slay, right? They do well. They slay, okay. Yes, queen. And then other times, other times, these projects are just a big poopy diaper. And can I ask what happens Drag to- Drag them. <laughs> can I ask what happens to the check in those instances? In those instances- Whereas normally you cash a check. Sure. The check bounces, baby. Ooh. <laughs> now I should introduce our our our, our hosts here mm. with me today on the podcast. Well, today mm. I think we're guests. You're oh, the that's host. true. Yeah. That's, that's true. I'm a guest host. You're my guest. Because this is a Ben's Choice, a.k.a. Purdueur Ben's Choice, a.k.a. Ben-Ducer's Choice. Enough, enough. That's 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 good. Thank you. Tiebreakers choice, and that of course is Griffin Newman. Hi everybody, how's it going? And also with us today, David Sims. That's me, guys. Yes, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite movies from growing up. Yeah, it's a little gem. Maybe y'all have heard of it. I don't know. It's called Clifford. Clifford. It's a, a comedy cult classic at this point, right? A Paul Flaherty picture. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. A joint. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we, we like to in between our miniseries because we usually do full miniseries focused on a director going through their career. We just talked about time. Steven Spielberg. Yes. Bergen. The director of equal quality to Paul Flaherty. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. He, he's shooting there at least. And equal box office courses. <laughs> um, we like to hand you the reins, Ben. Give you the check. You give us a little palate cleanser, a little sherbet. Yeah. In between dishes. Um, this time, like the last three Ben's choices we did, I think all three of those movies came from the first text conversation. That's true. Where we said, Ben, if we let you pick a movie, what would what would you pick? And I just threw at you guys basically movies that I had watched over and over again on VHS right. tapes. And yep. I think the three off the top of the dome were... Fletch, The Man Who Knew Too Little, and Under Siege, Too Dark Territory. Which we've we, we've covered in, in glorious detail. Right. And then this time, you were pitching stuff to us, but you were kind of going more highbrow. Yeah, you were trying to be a smarty pants. Well, no, because I've thought, like, pick films like that you guys you basically had expressed to me, like, pick movies that we really would never watch, or it's been a long time, or just, sure. like, very kind of eclectic and weird, right? Sure. So yeah. I thought, like, Gummo. There's a film I'm obsessed with, I love, but I think at some point we're going to cover that director. It's not impossible. He's, a, right. he's an auteur. And it, it lines up with your Dirt Boy aesthetic. It's oh definitely, it fits yes. into the brand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you pitched uh, Bob Dylan, No Direction Home. 
which I or, or no, don't look back. Don't which look one? back. Right. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which I'm obsessed with. It was that Penny Baker um, documentary but they shot it. right around the time that Dylan went electric in London on tour. Super cool. Here, these are movies that people think are works of art. That's the thing. I mean, you're you're picking movies as our finest film critic, right. and we said no. Pick what's a movie? <laughs> Give us another movie you used to watch on VHS all the time growing up. And I was like, fine, all right. Uh, well, I like that Clifford movie. Yes. Don't pick a, a poet laureate movie. Pick a dirt bike Benny movie, and yes. then Clifford. Immediately, I said yes. And David, you went. What is this? <laughs> uh, now I had heard of Clifford. Sure. Obviously. Right. Um, one of my, my former roommate, Andy, his family's dog was called Clifford, named after the Clifford, the movie Clifford. Not, Not after Clifford the but big, big, big red dog. That's a little muddled. A little strange. Yeah. Um, and uh, I knew that it was like some Martin Short vehicle, and like that was kind of what I knew. I'd never seen it. Yeah. I'll, I knew it was a cult movie. Like I'll, I knew it had been right. a bomb, and then like people liked it. I'll give my quick background, and then Ben, you can take the reins again. Uh, I'd never seen this movie in full. I would watch pieces of it on TV a lot. It would just be a movie that was on. And every time I was on, I would say to my dad, like, what's this movie about? And he was like, Martin Short plays a boy. Yeah, Martin Short plays a 10-year-old. And I was like, why? And he was like, I don't know. That's the joke of the movie. <laughs> right. And I could never, as a very, I was a very literal child. I could never get over that. It was also like this movie came out within like a couple years of Jack, a couple years earlier. Well, it came out a couple years earlier. Yeah, it was made many years earlier. But sure. yes, yes. Um, but like that movie, Jack went, is ninety six. Like, I think right. Two years later, that movie goes so far out of its way to be like, here's why. Well, yeah, a boy looks like Robin Williams, and Jack, uh, Clifford well, right. is just like you. Just have to accept that this is a grown man playing a ten year old. Yeah, Jack's also super maudlin. It's like about you know mortality or whatever. This is um. Uh, a, a horror film. Yes, uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know that there's any other way, that, right? Any other genre it belongs to more than horror. Sure, but I'll I would say, say it's horror first, comedy second. I'll say this. Yeah, I've been on the record saying this. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, Jack is my number one least favorite movie of all time. Um, I saw Jack whenever it came out. Yeah, I didn't like it, and yeah. I was only like ten years old. So yeah. that really must it must have sucked. I don't remember much about it. Is Bill Cosby in it? Correct. He like farts a lot. Yeah. I didn't like it. Here's the thing: that movie was already bad, and it's only gotten worse with times and reveals about its cast members. It's like impossible to watch now. Um, I I did an episode on Jack for uh, the Masterpiece uh, Theater podcast. Shout out! Oh sure, yeah, which I'm going to be on probably around when this posts. Actually, what movie are you talking? Ponyo, about? my favorite movie. Oh, cool. I'm doing an episode on Cars Three. I'm trying to get Yuck. to the Five Timers Club on Masterpiece. Shout out to Josh Spiegel. Yep. Uh, ben, take them reins. All right. Well, so I definitely watched this movie a ton as a kid. Uh, this was like a film where if like I, I went to the shore annually with my family, I was always renting this fucker. Uh, if it was on TV, like I feel like this was like a thing I very much watched in the summer. Yeah. I was like sitting around in the living room. It was like in the air conditioning and this was on TV. I'd definitely watch it with the commercials and everything. Uh, I also should give a little context because I know we love context love on this it. podcast. I was a little bit of a like uh, bad kid, I guess, mm -hmm. like a little bit of a little shit. So I really loved Clifford's character because I related to it. I would talk to adults and I would say their first name because I thought that was hilarious. 
I would, it was what a weirdo. Like I would be like Marianne to like my friend's mother, and she would be like, "Ben, don't call me by my first name." <laughs> well, I mean, that's you know, your nicknames represent the different sides of your personality, much like Split and Dirtbike Benny is sort yeah. of the nickname we've used to represent your childhood years, which you've alluded to being a stinker, mm-hmm. doing prank phone calls, yep. having a slingshot, yeah, riding a true. dirt bike. Mm-hmm. Um, True. So the second you said you love this movie, not just because it is a film that very much like died in theaters and has acquired a strange life on cable and VHS, mm. but also because I, Clifford immediately makes sense as as an analog for for Ben. I yeah. guess so. Yeah, a little bit for like, the for little elements. Ben. What I imagine Ben's childhood being like. Right. A little stinker. I definitely was a little stinker, but like Clifford. I guess it's like Clifford is presenting himself as a little stinker, but he's worse. He is. Clifford's sure. a disturbing individual. Well, he's a sociopath. That's the best yes. way to put it. And here's the interesting counterpoint movie for me, okay? Sure. So this movie, is, as you've been alluding to, was shot much earlier by Orion, which then crumbled and sat in a shelf for a while. It was produced by Orion right. Pictures, which was a sort of successor to United Artists uh, that made lots of good movies, like The Sons of the Lambs and... Fucking dances with wolves, all kinds of cool. And Han, uh, her sisters made a Han lot of very successful bad movies too. They were mostly sure. known for trash, but they no, but they made cool made stuff. some interesting stuff as well. Yeah, but uh, they went under. It was supposed to come out in ninety one. Okay, came out in ninety four after like complicated bankruptcy. You know, because then yeah. MGM eventually gets the Orion uh, library. Right. Um. So and then it came out. It was a colossal bomb. Mm-hmm. It was a huge financial disaster. Critically reviled. It was re- greeted with disgusted reviews. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, honestly, it was kind of the end of Martin Short's career as a as a movie star. I would say, like, not not so much of Martin Short above the title anymore. More uh, like sprinkling him in. Yeah, I was looking at IMDb. There's one after this where he's kind of the guy, and I forget which one it is. Maybe ninety seven. Oh. I think a simple wish is his last like. Oh boy! Yes, hey, that's honestly that is Amara Wilson picture. He is he's the second lead, but okay. it is it is her. I mean, she yes. was she was the Wait, poster star. But didn't he do a Glick film? He did, but that was a that was a small film. That was like an independent release. Oh, okay. but when, when was it? What's it called? That no, yeah. I mean, like this really Jimmy is... Glick and Lala Wood. Well, I mean, let's talk about Marty. Short oh, that's in a way later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. But uh, yes, yes. A- after this, he sort of becomes uh, a supporting player. Sure, he's not even above the title anymore, um, and he's like a scene stealer. And yeah. Martin Short is this, which example. he had already been doing. You know, right. he's in the Father of the Brides and all that. You know. Right. Uh, someone tweeted the other day something, and when I say the other day, we're recording this uh, seventeen <laughs> years in advance. So you know, <laughs> whatever. Go take on. that with a grain of salt. Tweet? But they were like parodying our show, and they were like tweeting a fake dialogue between us. Do you remember this? Uh, no. The line they attributed to me was like, yeah, Hollywood never really figured out how to use that guy. Because apparently I'm really into that narrative. Sure, sure, sure. Which I accept fully. Right. That's one of your tropes. Right. When What was mine? I'm, I'm trying to remember yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, Martin Short is like a very key example of that, of someone where like no one ever questioned his talent. Yes. He was always like beloved culturally, but he never like... There was that Vanity Fair profile of him like five years ago where they yeah. said like there are few guys who have reached the same level of comedy legend who like never were the star of their own TV show right. and never were the star of a successful He's movie. He's never been particularly successful. No. Like... I mean, you know, Maya and Marty last year or whatever. Yeah. Anytime he's in it and he's like, it's me, Martin Short, doing the thing you guys love. And I'm always like, we do love it, I guess, but like, you don't have any... 
like cultural touchstone to go to exactly. No. I mean, his most beloved movie is Three Amigos. Yes. Which at its time was a disappointment. Yeah. It wasn't but, but, a flop, but was like really, it was expensive. It was hugely no, hyped. It was, it was Lauren Michaels' post-SNL movie, and people were like, oh, it's a double. Right. And now I think it's like grown in esteem to a triple or a home run. But I mean, that's not even just his, you know, no. Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Martin Short. Right. Yeah. And then like most of his movies, yeah. other than that, are like two-handers. Oh, yeah, totally. He, you have like Inner Space, you have Captain Ron, right. you know? Uh, he did like an Annette O'Toole movie, right? An Annette O'Toole movie. I think he did an Annette O'Toole picture. He did that Nick Nolte he did a movie. movie with Danny Glover called Pure Luck. Right. I think Three Fugitives. Is that what's called? Two Fugitives? Three Fugitives with Nick Nolte. Correct. Uh, and James Earl Yeah, Jones. it was a lot of like pairing him with another actor to see if it worked. And it never like totally. But it never worked. like didn't work. No. I crossed my heart is the Annette O'Toole movie. Um, he also, and then yeah, you know, and then I think Father of the Bride, right? For kids like me, yeah, who were too young for SCTV, yeah, and SNL, like his his eighties TV, you know, legendary stuff, yeah. That was like, oh, right, Martin Short, brilliant. I love him. He's so funny as Frank. It's like it's not even a like textured performance, let's no. say, but it's a a very big supporting performance, a very big supporting performance. But it gets to this thing, which is like. Martin Short might actually be too big for most projects. He's, he's a big actor. He's a big actor. And he's it's Dana Carvey esque. Yes. Uh, I would say Dana Carvey is a good successor to Martin Short in the SNL yeah. uh, spectrum. And Another they, guy who never really made sense in movies. No, and certainly not as leading men because they always were on. It was always so hyped. So on. But there's something very uh, endearing about Martin Short, even when a lot of the time. He was good at inherent bias. Really good. And there's that story where he was like at the New York Film Critics uh, screening and someone at the Q&A was like, where have you been? And then everyone applauded and they were like, we love you, Marty. Welcome back. And it's like, dude, didn't stop acting. He's been here for no, 10 years. No, he's around, uh, you know, and he, he'll host SNL once in a while. Yeah. He'll drop in to like any, you know, he's yeah. so funny in Arrested Development. I was that just going to say, he's One of the strangest so guest good. performances on that show. But, but it's Swoop like, me, dragon. <laughs> he kind of works best as a disruptive force in yeah. a project. If you give him too much, the whole project becomes insane. Yeah. You know, I don't think he's ever been bad in anything. But sometimes if a project has to bend to his level, it like the whole reality gets warped. You, you, we agree. Uh, but but he's never really had a stink on him, which is interesting. It's true, even though he, like we say, is not really what I would consider successful. But no, it doesn't matter. But I feel like everyone has now, this nostalgia for him. Yeah. Well, you worked with him. Yeah. Can I talk about this a little bit? Yeah. So we've invoked this a lot, but I was fired from the sitcom Mulaney. <laughs> on which he was, I guess... He kind of was occupying the Alec Baldwin role yeah. or whatever, like, you know, the kind of, like, big star role. Right. Uh, and he's very big on the show. Sure. Uh, I liked Mulaney. I didn't think it ev- totally knew what to do with him sometimes, uh, but he was pretty funny on it. And w- there's a couple episodes that are really good, you know, where he does funny stuff. Like Power Moves is a good episode. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't watch it because it was, I'm like, uh, my, my seeing my family hang out with someone else. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, you know, quick quick breeze by. Sure. The pilot script for Mulaney is still the funniest script I've ever read. Um, we shot that for NBC yeah. with some interference, but I think largely made it through. Uh-huh. Well, it was the exact cast that ended up on air, except with uh, me in it. And NBC passed on it. And Fox picked it up and demanded uh, extensive rewrites that remodeled the whole show. My character was written out at their insistence. 
and all the other cast members stayed on, but the characters were very warped from what the original conception was. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's clear the Fox were like, Mulaney, your stand-up's funny. The show should be like your stand-up bits. Right. Why isn't it we don't do that? And also, why is there a skinny guy? You're a skinny guy. Get rid of the other skinny guy. We only need one skinny guy. Like, yeah. So get rid of him. What about a fat guy? Like, he could be really fat. Well, I'm not going to say anything on Mike. <laughs> But what an interesting conversation you just hypothetically had. And it's, I mean, it's when the pilot, because uh, Mulaney did kind of settle down and figure itself out, but uh-huh. the pilot, the Fox pilot, is truly, like, obviously written by a studio head. Essentially yeah. just saying, because it has all these scenes that are just adapted from Mulaney stand-up bits. Yeah. And it's clear that he was just like, I love that bit. That should be in the show. Like, it's it's all wrong. The Right. Whereas uh, his original conception of the show was not that at all. Yeah. Um, him being a stand-up Seinfeld, was a side but worse. part. And he, they didn't adapt his bits in right. the same sort of way. So literally. Um, the only two people I know who watched, who I know personally who watched every episode of Mulaney while it was airing were you and my father. And you were writing pieces defending it. My father would just call me every Monday and go, Griff, that show's not working. <laughs> I wrote one piece defending it. I just thought okay. that it had this kind of sick heart to it that I was sort of in- sure. intrigued Sure. It was just by. the two men anyway. I love in my life were watching the thing that destroyed me. But um, I got to uh, work with him for like two weeks. Sure. Which was- uh, Exciting. Uh, I mean, so far beyond uh, saying it's a, a highlight of my career is an understatement. Uh, my time working on it, was like kind of a dream before it uh, uh, rose up right. like uh, the Dark Phoenix and killed me. I will say, uh, bar none, he is the most uh, technically precise actor I have ever worked with. Interesting. And the most fascinating process to observe. The idea was they set him up to be more like how Jack Donaghy was in the first season of 30 Rock, where they weren't sure how on board Alec Baldwin was. When 30 Rock started, he had in his contract that he only had to be in half the episodes of the season. Mm-hmm. And they thought he'd be more of a floating sometimes character. And so it was like, once an episode, you'll have a big scene where uh, Martin Short's character, who is a game show host and a washed-up comedian, uh, has Mulaney's personal assistant. Mulaney goes over to his mansion to help him write jokes. And it would be like, here's your little Marty Short in the middle of every episode. Right. And so my character never interacted with him, but it was a multi-camera show. Right. And so you'd rehearse every day like it was a play. Mm -hmm. So it felt like being in a high school play where you'd hang out with the whole cast all the time. And he would come in, he had it in his contract that his stuff was up first every morning, mm-hmm. and we'd all get there, even though we didn't need to Just be there. Just to watch there. it happen. We wouldn't sit in our dressing room, and Seton Smith, past guest of the show, and I would sit there and just watch and be like, this is fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. And in sitcoms like that, they rewrite extensively. Every day there's a new draft. And he had the biggest binder I've ever seen. Mm. Binders full of women. Uh, no, no. <laughs> he had a huge, huge binder, and he had every single draft in there because his notes were so thorough on every page. Like, the most notes I've ever seen, because he just has a thousand comedic ideas for every line. Sure. And he'd go like, John, what if I was eating pudding in the scene? And you'd be like, what? <laughs> okay, Martin, sure. It's okay, right? And then he'd go like, I, I know a guy who was a businessman, and I'd go meet up with him, and he'd always just be eating pudding, and it would, it would play against all the points he was making. And then he'd be like, I don't know, let's see what it looks like. Uh-huh. He'd take out a cup of pudding, and it would be like, that's the best pudding eating I've ever seen. He knew how to put just enough in his mouth that it would make his voice All funny, right. but you could still Griffin, hear it. I love you, but we have to stop. We have to talk about the damn movie. He was incredible, and I've been sure. sort of like, I've had a, re- a renewed appreciation for his abilities since that show, which was like four or five years ago now. 
Yeah, wow. Yeah. Time has passed. Time has passed. Time's is hard, Sweeney. Um, but, uh, yeah, we all would sit there on set and go, like, it's, God, Look he's going to win so many Emmys for this. Like, we sat there and we we're like, this is the comeback. Look. This is the one. Mulaney on NBC, it's, it's, a, it's an all-time what if. I'm not trying to throw this under the bus. I'm just saying there was this thing where we were all sitting there and we were like, right. he's due for the thing where he just. And he still is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what what yeah what he wants to do with himself. I don't know. Right. I don't know what this is. I don't know what the fuck Clifford is. Well, directed by Paul Flaherty, who is an SCTV guy. I so believe he came up on SCTV, which is a famous Canadian sketch show right. from the late seventies, early eighties. John Candy, uh, John Flaherty, right? Who directed else? Who Is Harry Crumb with John Candy. Um, yeah. Oh, oh, you're talking about this guy, uh, right. Paul Flaherty, right? Uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Who is Harry Crumb's a weird movie. I don't like that movie. I don't either. It's I, I watched it when I was like a teenager, and it grossed me out. And yeah. I didn't like it. This is an SCTV guy. This was trying to translate a dude who played best in sketch into being a movie star, and this is very much a sketch comedy movie in its sort of tone and aesthetic. I mean, this now, so we all know John Mulaney worships uh, Martin Short, and yeah. one of John Mulaney's greatest and most unheralded SNL sketches is that one where Fred Armisen plays like a really... A big kid, like you know, he's at like the dinner table. He's like, "Oh, please!" You remember this? Riley, sketch? I've never Riley. gotten this sketch. I know this sketch Love has a Clifford-like following. Exactly, that sketch is obviously like a Martin Scorch, a Martin Short sketch yes. for SCTV. Like that's it's got that vibe to it, right? And that's what this is like. Yeah, except it's a ninety-five minute movie or whatever. Yeah, can I quickly throw out a, a, a what if alternate history? What do you think would have happened if Martin Short, like, doubled down on Ed Grimley and made it his Pee Wee Herman? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you the thing about Pee Wee Herman is it's a really good movie. Right. You know, and it's like, if you make a really good movie and yeah. or a really interesting TV show, like, great. Yeah. It, it's not the character that is going to carry you through. You sure. do need, like, some artistry around it. Well, and this movie to me is very much like of a piece with the 90s trend of Hollywood trying to figure out how you make a Tim Burton movie without Tim Burton. Yeah. Like after Pee Wee and Beetlejuice, those one-two punches of like, oh, comedies that are like playful from a filmmaking standpoint. Yeah. And are this kind of like uh, impressionistic and have this many like weird visual influences. Sure. And odd tone management. That began in 2050. Right. Um, they just keep on trying to make a Tim Burton movie without him, and Tim mm. Burton also then fails to ever make a movie like that ever again. It's true. But there's that one pocket where, like, Beetlejuice and Pee-wee's Big Adventure are these weird dead-end movies that no one's been able to replicate, where you just go, like, man, why couldn't all comedies be it's as adventurous? Hard. As it's uh, hard. The uh, people who wrote this movie never wrote a movie again. Crazy. Never before or again. Yeah. I don't know who they are. So is this a, t- a style of comedy that has really just fallen out of favor, would you guys say? Yeah. But I feel like people try to make it once in a while. I mean, The Master of Disguise is a different movie from this kind of movie. But, like, movies where it's like, yeah. why don't I just do bits? That can't be a movie? Like, you know, like, bit? Like, uh, some bits for you? But I think the added elements are, uh, like, really dark, dark worldview, soul kind of thing. Well, this movie's sick. Right. But that, that's not, that is atypical. I would say. But I think that's... Well, Pee-wee's... Yeah. Right. I think that's uh, people getting the the in, the recipe wrong from Pee-wee. 
like Pee Wee's dark, but not in a way that makes you uncomfortable. No, exactly. Although you know that's and that's part of Paul Rubens' skill with that character right. is that he walks the line better than he should. Yeah. I think DeVito was trying to make these kinds of movies for a while. Cabin Boy is certainly a movie like this. Death to yeah. Smoochie. Death to Smoochie, right. There's a wave of movies like this that just have like the oddball visual elements, a really dark heart, mm -hmm. you know, a kind of go for broke, like comedic style. Sure. No performance can be too big. Yes. But I can't think of anything in the last 10 years that's that comes to mind. No, I no. think like you had too many high profile flops. Like the movies in this style that flopped <laughs> didn't just flop, but were like hated. All right. But let's talk about this movie. Let's talk about this movie. Okay. Ben, guide us through clips. Ben, Great. I wanted to say something to you. Yes, sir. Because you, the minute I, so the minute I started watching this movie, probably 15 minutes and I texted both of you just being like, wait, what the fuck is this movie? Yeah, you were flipping out. Um, you replied with something that many people, both online and uh, that I know, reply with when they are confronted with the name of this movie, which is, I want to say Mason? <laughs> Why is that line so crucial to all of I you? I don't know. <laughs> it makes me laugh so hard. The setup is like, well, we'll get to that part. I'm oh, obsessed God. with that line. <laughs> what I, is it? Why? Well, you look at like the letterbox page, it's like... Five reviews that are like, I want to say Mason. And this is a great, I think this is a great time to give a shout out to the best show. Okay. To Tom Sharp. Sure, sure. Because I'm a big fan of that that radio show and then now that podcast. Uh, grew up listening to that guy. And there was, a, there was a period of time a few years back where him and Worcester were like just doing bits where they constantly referenced this movie and specifically that line. So sure. I think there might be some. Maybe that's why. Okay. There okay. Might so be that's some why it's helped take sure. of that kind of going on. Interesting. Sure. But uh, yeah, I just also that was just a memorable line to me. Where like me and my friends, you know, like my buddy Garrett, who also has a similar kind of taste in movies, him and I would constantly just quote that at each other. I don't get it. I feel like. <laughs> Have you seen this before? Not all the way through. I'd just seen it in pieces okay. on cable. I mean, I probably had seen the whole movie out of order. Uh -huh. I'd seen it like you see the Cloverfield monster in Cloverfield. Yeah, no, I Like I could put it together in my yeah. mind's eye. Sure. Um, uh, past guest Morgan Evans. Mm. Maybe he's the only one who did this, but I feel like he always does this. Invokes the line that you did at the beginning, Ben. Because <laughs> I think that's kind of like, for me, the turnkey of the entire movie is Charles Grodin just being like, act like a normal human. Right. Because the whole point of this movie is like, wait, it's not just that he's evil. No, it's he's... not that he's a shithead. It's like, what the fuck is he? And also, <laughs> why is weird. he played by a grown man? <laughs> <laughs> like, so... the movie calls itself out and goes like, this is, doesn't make any sense. What is this creature? The movie begins in the year 2050. Well, wait, let Ben guide us. Sure. Ben, when does the movie begin? It begins in the year 2050. Oh, wow. And Martin Short's an old man. He's, <laughs> he's like, like in some future. He's like, like a Jesuit or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, future priest. Like he's a future priest. I yeah. think it's a school, right? It's like a Catholic boarding school or something. Oh, but even that, before that, the movie opens with those oh, weird paintings. Yeah. It goes like, this is the story That's of a true. boy's adventure spirit or yeah, whatever it is. That's says. true. And like then I, I was like, okay, all right. Like I was into this. Very it's like much a fable. Like yeah. The never ending story or right. something. Which I think is one of the mistakes this movie makes. But carry on. Cool. Uh, and so you basically just like to kind of get us through it. Martin Short is like mentoring this like sort of ridiculous. A bad boy. Bad boy kid who apparently blew up the gymnasium. Played by Ben Savage of Corey Boy Matthews. Meets World. Oh, yes. that was Ben Savage. It's little Corey Matthews. Shit. And he's a little stinker. He's a stinker. Kid. And he's like, I was once a stinker too. Right. But and there's also a couple weird bits like he pretends to have a heart attack and then it's a it's like a scheme to get 
Ben Savage to like come near him, or that the, yeah. the the suitcase and then the child fall on top of him. That's funny. That right. is funny. The basketball hits him on the head, then a suitcase, and then the child. That's yeah. funny. Well, That's... there there are a few actors he who chokes love... on a mint. Yes, <laughs> there are a few actors who love physical business more than Martin Short, and he's good at and it. And he's got a bag of like ten moves he loves doing, and you see him try to incorporate them into anything he does. And it's like, even though you've seen it before, him choking is always funny. Yep. Him falling is always funny. Him dancing is always funny. Mm. Like, he dances the same way in Clifford that Ed Grimley dances. Mm. He kind of did the original dab. Do you realize that? He does okay. the move where he, like, puts his arm in front of his face. Okay. He does that in all his movies. All right. You know, I think you picked up on this. Very woke. He's very the dab woke. and daddy. Mm, wait, what? <laughs> very woke. Very, very intersectional. Oh, boy. Am I using the language right? No. Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay. So uh, what is all established, though, in this, like, kind of uh, flashback, uh, or rather, Right, he's like, let me tell you about when I was a bad kid. Oh, no, go ahead. Right. Yeah. It's a and, story in a story. Right. So yeah. then it's like, And so you know that he's going to reform and become- a Catholic missionary or probably priest uh, Which whatever. Which I love because I can imagine the screenwriters sitting there and they're like, wait a second. If we frame the movie as a reformed right, Clifford right. telling about his evil ways, then the audience will be on board with him if they know he turns out good eventually. I do think that is important to that, yes. sort of. Because, yeah, otherwise I think you'd just be watching the movie and be like, is it just about like a, a demon seed? Like that's what the sure. whole movie is? And like, is he just going to die at the end? Like, that's kind of what you want to happen, right? Right. But you want he, him to fall into the La Brea tar pits or something, right? But here's the interesting like counterpoint movie. This movie, I guess, was made at a very similar time to Problem Child. Yeah, sure. I can look that up for you. Problem Child is like the version of this movie that doesn't make you uncomfortable, right? That is just like goofy, like hijinks. It was made pretty much. Yeah, Problem Child's 1990, and this movie yeah. was supposed to come out around there. That becomes successful. They make a bunch of sequels. They do an animated series. Everyone hates this movie. It's because in Problem Child, it feels like the kid's just kind of guileless and doesn't know what he's doing but causes damage. Uh, another another small point. In Problem Child, the kid's played by a kid. Correct. He's a little kid. Correct. A little kid actor. Yes. Not Martin Short and everyone near him is standing on a box. Yes. Yes. And I also think in Problem <laughs> Child, uh-huh. you feel bad for John Ritter. Sure. And in this, Charles Grodin is playing as curmudgeonly as he ever has. Yeah. It's a, uh, this is a performance that Grodin, I think, then uh, modulates for Beethoven. Yes. You know, in Beethoven, he adds some dad into it. So right. you're a little more on his side. Yeah. Uh, in this, he's kind of an asshole. Oh, he's definitely an asshole. And like... Even though the beginning of the movie is like getting you on his side, because I mean, when well, he's the telling Mason the story, line, from the very beginning he can't even lie convincing. Well, right, yeah. but the beginning of the story is like you know, blah. Uh, what's Charles Gordon's character's name? Uh, Jesus, uh, Martin. Yes, Martin. Like he wanted to do two things. He wanted to build a public transit system for El- Los Angeles. Right. That sounds like a nice idea. It'd be great. We've been waiting for one. Sure, for like a really centuries. functional one. Great. Yeah. And he wanted to marry Mary Steenburgen. And you're like, okay, this is going to be a guy oh, who's he's a nice, nice guy. Yeah. and we'll see him deteriorate. Right, right. And then from the very first scene when he shows her the house, Mary Steenburgen's like, fuck you. <laughs> you're an asshole. I've known it all along. Right. He buys like kind of a crappy minimalist one bedroom. Yeah. Like, he didn't even talk to her. Yeah. It's a weird move, actually. That's a really yes. weird move. And she's like, you clearly don't want to have children. You're a self-involved guy. I don't want to marry. You know, like, I don't want to be with kids. you I love kids. What about my nephew? Uh, I want to say Mason. I want to say well, Mason. Well, hold on. <laughs> give, give it, you know, it's due. Okay. All right? Like, the setup is more, she's like, come on. No, I, I love kids. I, I got a nephew. My, my, my nephew, uh, 
She's and like, she's like, what's, his she's like what's his name? He's like, ah, I want to say Mason. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. It is funny. It's just, it's just weird that it became it's such just a, a weird aside. Little like not even a bit, but it just damn, it really resonates. But but Grodin, who was known as like Hollywood's greatest crank, right? Yeah, was like a dude who came out of like uh, Meisner. You know, was contemporaries with Gene Wilder. Everyone thought he was going to be like the leading man. And he did a lot of cult comedies that like never really crossed over, like Heartbreak Kid and stuff. Well, he did Midnight Run. Well, that was I that's think later. Yeah, that's right. the moment. But he already had been around for a long time at that point. Because he's uh, in like, oh, he's been around forever at that point. Absolutely. He's much older than he looks because he's like sixty in this movie. Yeah, he's almost. He's close. He's in his fifties. He always yeah. looked younger. Yeah. Folks out there should watch his appearances on the Johnny Carson show. Right. He's so fucking. That's the good. big thing. He yeah, would go on talk shows and he would act like Carson. he hated it. Yeah. And that really elevated him. And Midnight Run, which we will inarguably cover at some point in this Absolutely. podcast. And he's in Ishtar, your favorite. Which I love him, man. Um, uh, and but, then he's in the Beethoven movies. Right. And suddenly the kids are like, love this grumpy guy. Give me him. And he does a couple of those. And then he retires for like 20 years. Pretty much. He starts I mean, fighting. Clifford is yeah. his last screen appearance. And that's only because it got released late. Like Dave is really his last screen appearance. Which he's so good in Dave. Great in Dave. Uh, and then he becomes really into like uh, civil rights and like uh, uh, trials, like mistrials, correcting mistrials. Do you know about this? I don't, but we can't get into. He hosted like a <laughs> CNN show for a while, and he started acting again in the last couple of years, like sure. Louis and uh, the while we're young and stuff. Hey, the comedian, the comedian. He's he's not great in it. But Midnight Run, De Niro signs on, and they wanted a huge star next to him, and they wanted like Robin Williams. They wanted to gender flip it and make it share. Like, there were all these weird ideas, and De Niro held his ground, and he was like, this movie works if it's Charles Grodin. And that's the movie where he finds the right balance of being an asshole and being kind of lovable. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this movie, empowered by Midnight Run and getting this, like, second lease on his career, he's like, oh, people love it when I'm an asshole, and just plays so unlikable the entire film. Right. Which is amazing to watch comedically, but it also means you're watching a movie with, like, it is like Alien versus Predator. It's like, whoever wins, we lose. (laughs) I'm rooting for Grodin. I'm sorry. I'm rooting for Grodin. Yeah, in the same I way, want him to kill this kid. In the same way that I'm rooting for the Predator. I want him to kill this kid and 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 get away with it. That's what I want to happen. And I want him to I think it's because I want him to build that transit system. Yeah. They, and it's weird that the movie kind of like sort of skims past that at the end. Yeah. The movie skims past everything at the end, though. We'll we get to that. We also know it's never gonna happen. <laughs> True. It's not gonna happen. Well, I mean, hey, it's set in 2050. Like it could predict any future. True. You know, yeah, but no one's I mean, going like, man, took the bus here. I don't I mean, know. Like, I don't know they they're... could be, yeah. in the future, they could be on some train, and he could be yeah. like, well, you know, and then one day he built this train that we now use or sure, whatever. Sure, fair deuce, fair deuce. But yeah, so you have, the introduction of Clifford is him on the plane with his parents. Um, Richard Kind. Yeah. And uh, Jennifer Savage. Jennifer Savage, okay. Uh, are his parents. They're on the plane. And they are just worn down. They, Richard Kind they is so hate great. this child. They hate Richard him. Kind, who is the best at playing like a, a weary, like I, how do you put it? Just broken. Yeah, just a broken man. I remember like when he showed up in Kimmy Schmidt recently yeah. as like the teacher who like runs the rubber room or whatever. He's like a human puddle. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectly put. Right? Uh, he was the guest on the first uh, oh, hello, I went to, and he was a fabulous guest. I can't even imagine. Um, He's exactly who you want to see. 
interviewed. Yeah, exactly. By yeah. It was when I was. It was when it was off Broadway. He was yeah. sitting in front of me, which I did not realize. Right. It was, but every time someone he laughed, he he went like ah ah ah. He has like a very pronounced laugh. Yeah. And I was like, who is this guy? And then when they did the thing, is like, and now our guest Richard Kind. And he just stood up and got on stage with him. He was very funny, very into it. And then Mulaney was like, also, you're best friends with George Clooney, right? Which he is. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, that's the one thing I can't talk about. And it was really, it was an interesting, he was nice about it, but it was like, no go. Like, I'll talk about anything else. Yeah. It was weird. It is. It's so weird that he's best friends. They're with like Clooney. best buds. But from yeah. back when Clooney was like a weirdo were, who lived by the pool and had a pet pig. They were both just like 80s, like workaday yeah. sitcom <laughs> actors. Uh, I saw him in an audition waiting room once and saw he ran into some other like, you know, like uh, a New York character actor. Uh-huh. And I was eavesdropping on their conversation. And Richard Kind talking about his career sounded like a Richard Kind character talking about it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, they just won't pick up my calls. <laughs> I mean, he's got two scenes, Ben. Like, how much of the movie he's he's not in much of the movie. No, he's it's just, just the scene on the plane and the scene off the plane. Yeah, and he fades like Bing Bong. He he's good as Bing Bong. Yeah. So they're on the plane. Clifford's being a fucking pain in the ass. He's got a toy dinosaur. He's like he's like launching it using the fucking uh, the table on the back of the the wait with the fold out table. What am I saying? Um, and then he like realizes they're flying over dinosaur land. He's obsessed with dinosaur land, right? And he will pretty much Which is stop not a real place. at nothing to get there. That's his holy girls. He just wants to go to this theme park. And so he decides he's going to go see the pilot, really, to just sabotage the flight, to force them to land in Los Angeles, which yeah. is where Dino Land is. Because they're trying to get to Hawaii where the dad has to speak at a conference? Yeah, at some business yeah, thing. Yeah, right. I mean, Something. more or right. less, though, it's just like he, in the, um, I wanted to say pilot area, <laughs> cockpit. Yeah. Got it. Uh, he pushes some button. They're forced to land. Uh, basically, Richard Kind calls his, like, sort of, his brother he doesn't talk to very often who lives in Los Angeles and gets him to take care of Clifford while they're in Hawaii on the business trip. And, oh, what good timing, because uh, Groden has just gotten in the fight with Mary Steenburgen, and uh, this is a great time to prove to her that he does love kids. Yeah, it's one of those annoying movie contrivances. Yep. It's stupid. This guy whatever. who hasn't seen his nephew for 10 years but wait, invokes him an hour before he gets the phone call. So Clifford almost crashes a plane because he wants to go to the dinosaur land. Sure. Clifford is played by Martin Short. <laughs> He's a 10-year-old boy. Played by like a 38-year-old man. Yeah, it's a good, actually, that's a good call. How old was Martin so Short? Uh, born in 1950, so he would have been close to 40 years old yeah. when he shot this movie. Probably 40. But he reads 10. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm doing my math wrong. No, no, 30 years old. Okay, that's a little more. I mean, it's what am I talking about? It's still a 30-year-old playing a 10-year-old. Right. Right. But um, so they do it just basically just by having him be short. He is very tiny. Uh, he's a small man anyway. He's elfin. I mean, he's not just short, but he's like yeah, he's thin. He's he's built like me. Um, I think a lot of the scenes they just had actors stand on boxes. I uh, think they cast a lot of tall actors too. Sure. Uh, I am assuming in some scenes Martin Short's basically just on his knees just to you know reinforce it. It weirdly the the perspective thing weirdly works. Yeah, it does. The only time it seems weird is there's some close-ups of his face. And he has a man's face. Yes. Like you, it's not like you can see stubble exactly, but you can see a sh- he has a shaved face. He works better in wide shots. Yeah. Um, but they even like they have a lot of full body shots. I mean, they, I think to the movie's advantage, they don't uh, beat themselves up about keeping him at the same height. So if they want to do a shot of him walking, yeah, 
and you can see everyone's feet. Right. They try to cast tall actors right. around him, and they just let him be that size. And if they're sitting, he does a lot of stuff, too, where he holds his hands closer to his chest. Yeah, he's wearing um, a short school pants. uniform with short pants, right? He's wearing, like, a little suit and tie. Yes. Oh, fucking God. I'm, I Let me see if I can recall He kind of dresses like a little businessman. Like He had a really good story he told on set about he had to get his legs waxed every day. For that movie? For Clifford. Let me, I might recall it by the end of this okay. episode, but it was a story about every day he had to go in the hair and makeup shop, and this woman had to wax his legs. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so Ben. It had to do with his genitals, but I forget what it was. Yeah. Great. He's united with Charles Grodin, with Martin, his uncle. I think he's sort of like, you see right away that he's already sort of starting to manipulate, right? And mm-hmm. like, I think ask him to go to dinosaur land, right? They can't. Because he has to basically go. Charles has to go bring him over to the girlfriend's There's house. There's always to show like off something that needs to happen, right? Yeah, it's never really that important or clear. It's just sort of like it. Uh, everything keeps getting in the way of going to Dinosaur Land. But but have we established that Grodin was sort of like worked on Dinosaur Land? Yeah, he was Land. like He's the architect of Dinosaur right. Land. Oh, true. Right. So he built the, Larry the, the Scary start, Rex. Right. At the start, it seems like this is going to be fine because he like picks him up and he's like, hey, you know, this, you know, yeah. and he's like, do you, what, I want to go to Dinosaur Land. He's like, I know Dinosaur Land. I worked on Dinosaur I Land. I can definitely take you. No argument there. It's fourth in the queue. So here's the question. Yeah. If the movie, if he just took him to Dinosaur Land. Right. Like immediately. Right. Sure. Would... Clifford then behave normally? Or would there be some new thing? I mean, this is the great question. Because the whole point of the movie is he just says, and he is consistent, basically, yeah. that he just wants to go to Dinosaur Land. And he becomes enraged because he believes that uh, Charles Gordon is, like, you know, ignoring this to, like, spend time with his girlfriend's family and do other things Also, like he's that. in love with the girlfriend. <laughs> then he's also in love with the girlfriend, which is very distressing, and I don't <laughs> like it. But he's not trying to prevent, he's not fully trying to prevent Grodin and the girlfriend from getting married. The girlfriend played by Academy Award winner Mary Steenburgen in a 100% thankless role. Not a great role, kind of a role that too often you see in these kinds of movies, which essentially just like the object of the movie for the guy is that he wants to marry the girl and he, so he is humiliated or embarrassed in various ways. And she's like, oh, I can't believe it. And then at the end, she's like, I forgive you, like, or for no reason or and whatever. And the conflict is that two other people also want to marry her. Sure. A very virile Dabney Coleman is trying to fuck her. And Clifford has this weird obsession the, with her. The great Dabney Coleman. The great. A TV actor, largely, but a, a good character actor in movies. Sure. Um, famously bald. Right. Wearing a wig. Yes. And an Sport Earl- a beard. And a beard. And the early plot point in the movie is that they don't know if he's wearing a wig or not. They say he's got one of the best rugs in town. Which I'm a little annoyed about because it's like, it's Dabney Coleman. The first thing you know about Dabney Coleman is that he's bald. That is the most famous thing about Dabney Coleman. Yes. Uh, another thing is that uh, Grodin, famously a rug wearer. Uh, yeah, well, he's got he's got that, that always oh, got that sort of fine doll hair wig. Right. Yeah. He loses his hair early but still keeps a useful face and has this weird doll rug that he wears for like 20 years of his career before he retires and when he comes out of retirement everyone's like whoa Charles Grodin aged a lot and it was like no he was just hiding his age for a long time right yeah yeah he's he's weirdly old but he's always got weird Kendall hair his hair doesn't move properly no it doesn't and in Midnight Run where he has to get dirty there's just like a second wig that's tussled (laughs) right it's like designed to look messy but it doesn't look human either um, I think the question of would Clifford 
be a good boy if you just got to go to dinosaur yeah. land. How one answers that says a lot about your worldview. I mean, it's a very yeah. existential question. Is it just the thing where it's like he just all he seems to care about? He right. does. You're right. He does, of course, get sexually uh, obsessed with Mary yeah. Steenburgen. But, uh, but he also wants to be the ring boy. Like he's yeah. not trying to stand in the way of the marriage because if they got married, he would also gain by getting to be the ring bearer. Right. But he's got this pet dinosaur called Stefan that he constantly addresses. Loves it. Constantly holding it. And that he blames all the bad things on. Right. Um, he wants to go to Dinosaur World. Correct. He just just fucking take him to Dinosaur World right away. And then maybe you everyone's happy. But is the film saying, like, do not get in the way of nature? Like, things right. must play out as, as they must? Well, or is it saying, is he an agent of chaos? No, I see it differently. I see it as what, what's happening is Clifford's just using his uncle, and his uncle is just using Clifford. So they're both competing right. to yeah. take advantage of each other. Right. right, right, right. And that's a bad situation. Totally. It's but, terrible. But the thing is, Clifford's, uh, Martin, Clifford's uncle, yes. is, is a recognizable person where it's like, he's a flawed guy. He kind of, you know, can be a bit of an asshole. He's unlikable. He's not very likable, but yeah. he's all right. Like, you know, as a like, he's a functional human being who can like hold a conversation with someone or whatever. Like, it's a, it's a very broad performance of a, a recognizable human. Um, whereas Clif- Clifford, Clifford is, is a broad performance of a, a robot, like a or weird. Whatever. He's like, yeah, a, yeah he's like, he's a, like a, a Looney Tune. A Looney Tune or like it's like he's like a Rumpelstiltskin or something. Like he's like something that's entered your life and it's like uh 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 bat no right. no no now you must do whatever the Clifford says. He's like the physicalization of a curse. Yes. Yeah. He's like a curse. Yes. That is a good way to put it. Yeah. And so is the answer like it's kind of like if a mugger points a gun at you, do you right. argue with the mugger or do you just say, Look, here's my wallet, like please go right. away? You know, do you just resolve the bad thing? And with Clifford, it's like, yeah, do you just deal with the curse first? Right. Or do you try and like avoid the curse and right, like does get... fighting make it worse? I think it is a very existential it's... movie, really, right. truly. Okay, Ben, what happens next? All right, so he embarrasses the uh, the boss uh, Dabney, right, um, by saying that's a great, that's the bestest rug I've ever seen, or bestest toupee I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, and so that's sort of starting this like recurring kind of uh, beats, let's say, of like. Clifford being brought out with uh, Martin and him just ruining what is happening in his life. Right. And Dabney, uh, uh, Groden is trying to impress Dabney. Dabney is trying to impress Steenburgen. Mm-hmm. And Clifford's right Dabney's here in the middle. Dabney pretty superfluous. We don't really need no. Dabney, right? No, no not, not at all. He's an odd, yeah. So we go back to... Uh, he has a lot of obstacles, Yeah, but they end up kind of not mattering at all. No. Not at all. Like Because like, part of the plot is like Grodin's trying to get like this big deal done. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, it's like it doesn't get done, and then it's just like not mentioned again. Right. Yeah. Clifford just fucks it up, and it's like, well, all right, I guess I'm not going to do that. Like yeah. He doesn't like then save the deal. No. Uh, and so in this, in this moment where he's like sort of yelling at... Um, He's yelling at Clifford. Clifford then sets up what's leading to the party, right? Because I think we should just jump to that. But Clifford also, he does this thing where he goes like, you can't just say to someone that they have a good rug. And he's like, I didn't say it, Martin. I said he had the bestest rug in the whole wide world. It's a compliment. Like you're establishing this thing that Clifford never thinks he does anything wrong. Right. And always has an explanation that either he didn't do it, the way you're perceiving the incident is incorrect, his intentions were pure, like Clifford never owns anything. 
Right. And you also get no kind of look it at It all his... gets blamed on, uh, what's the, Stefan or right. whatever. Yeah. And you don't get a look into Clifford's thought process. Like, sometimes it's hard to tell if Clifford knows what he's doing or not. As the movie goes on, there are later points where it's like, okay, Clifford's Machiavellian. Yes. But there are early points where you're just like, is Clifford just oblivious? Right. Does he is, not realize? Is he just an agent of chaos? Right. Like, yeah. But no, then there's that point where he kind of has the internal monologue where it's because, because Martin has to go to a family dinner. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, he'd rather go to dinner than like take me to dinosaur land. It's the one time Clifford like externalizes his thought process, like right. says then, it out loud, and then makes the tape with the bomb threat. And then right, and then you're like, right, this is a psychotic kid. That's what it is, right? He's well, that's what you do when you don't get your way. Yeah, he's woken the devil. Yes. Uh, and so at the party, it's you know sort of like. The stakes are high somewhat for Charles Grodin character because he really is already not on good terms with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Now he's going to uh, the 35th anniversary of her parents. Who don't seem to like him very much from the get-go. Not at no, all. No, true. They're not big characters, but they're not that fond of him. No. And so we just get a great fucking like stuck-up party scene with a ton of hijinks. True. Yeah. Uh, Put Sabasco in the Bloody Mary. Sabasco in the Bloody Mary. Which, which all, let's be also, clear. Who drinks Bloody Marys at that time? Yeah. Odd time to drink a Bloody Mary, number yeah. one. Two, Tabasco, a great ingredient in Bloody Mary. Yeah. Just I, in moderation. I guess just right, too much. And then it swaps out the lipstick for the chapstick, or, or rather the opposite of what I just said. Also, they didn't need to keep showing him putting on chapstick that much. Yeah, we get it. It's like five shots of him doing it to set up that one It takes him a while to figure it out. Yeah, you could say they were gilding the lily on that one. Or or chapsticking the Grodin on that one. Also, uh, why is everyone laughing at him? Like, it's like such a weird reaction. Yeah, this movie- uh, It's sort of crazy. has Has some weird moments of transphobia out of nowhere. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually, I mean, like- their you reaction know, to him in this moment's very odd. Isn't there the thing where the other guy starts looking at him amorously and then they keep on calling him a lady? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, a, you see that a lot in those 80s and yeah. 90s, early 90s comedies where it's like, a man dressed as a woman, can you imagine? Well, or what? I don't know. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, has that like fucking horrendous well, ending. Well, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. That's, that, that's on a whole other level because not only is it quite offensive, but also for a movie made in 94, it's also weirdly sexually graphic. Yeah. Like outside, it's just sort of a crazy way to end the movie. You like kind of see Sean Young's testicles, right? Yeah, and then everyone his- vomits. Everyone, not vomits, but everyone who has made out with Sean Young at some point goes like, ah, and, and like rubs their tongues. Everybody hurts. They play some song. I don't. I can't, over they it. definitely don't play. Everybody hurts. I okay. can't remember what they play. It's it's in, it's insane. The thing it's about terrifying. Ace Ventura it's like staring and into madness. We'll probably yeah. never. I mean, Tom well, Shadyak's had a very strange career. It, okay, actually. I'll make a promise right here. If this show runs for ten years, we'll do a Tom Shadyak <laughs> sure, miniseries. Sure, but um, that movie is Jim Carrey's very funny in it, but like. It's a very dark movie. Like, and like, I just mean like, it's like a weird hard boiled crime movie and it's about a crazy person. And there's that scene where he goes to the guy's house and it's filled with like, he's got his old like weird like hillbilly parents and the house is filled with like defaced images of Dan Marino. It's really odd. Uh, Tone Loke though. Tone Loke's great. Uh, I think When Nature Calls is better, even though it is uh, hashtag problematic in its own ways. No, When Nature Calls is way worse. When Nature Calls is terrible, but it has one incredible, incredible scene. When he walks out of the elephant's spot? Yes. Which which is 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 good. <laughs> it's just funny. 
better. He's no. also got the Monopoly man, the Monopoly guy thing. Yeah, that's that's kind of funny. No, I think when Carmen's just... rule of like this is the worst screenwriting thing you can ever do is the Monopoly guy thing. <laughs> right. uh, do you know about this Ben? No. So in when Nature calls, there's a scene where he goes to the party and everyone's looking at him weird because he's Ace Ventura and he's like disrupting stuff. Right. And someone's like, "Well, I never." And he's like a bald man wearing like a tuxedo with a monocle. Uh-huh. And uh, Ace Ventura goes like. Oh, and who are you, the Monopoly guy? And Dan Harmon uses that, like, he calls it a Monopoly guy, which is, like, when a movie sets up its own joke. Oh. Like, to make a character look funny. Yeah. It's like, that's not impressive that he zinged the Monopoly guy because you had a central casting call for a guy who looks like the Monopoly guy. Right. And then you went to wardrobe and you said, can you make this guy look more like the Monopoly guy? Like, it's, like, not funny if you set up circumstances that make someone look funny when they were contrived. Anyway. <laughs> Monopoly guy. Uh, Clifford. Talk about Clifford. Clifford. All right. So moving right along. Uh, last beat in the uh, party scene, right? Because we have the sabotage speech. Uh, we have the lipstick at the at the table, and then we have the police storm in and arrest Charles Grodin's character because yes, he made a bomb threat. He apparently yes called in a bomb threat at the home that they're in. Oh, and did we zoom past when the the gas station scene where there's the family who are going to dinosaur land and he switches costumes oh, yeah. with the boy. That was a little that was the in between of those, yeah. He pays a kid money to wear his dinosaur costume so he can sneak away with his family. Oh, that's right. And then Charles Gurd goes in the bathroom, sees a kid dressed like Clifford with a lot of money. Clifford does a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense. Nope. He fills his house with teenagers at one point and you have no idea how he could have possibly met or engaged with these teenagers. And then ties himself up. It's really weird. Yeah. I mean, they also, we were talking about the scene where he pays the kid for the dinosaur costume. Right. Yeah. There's like a weird pedophile joke that I did not remember Tell from me, watching I, I, it as a me. kid. Well, he, what, he, yeah. Charles Grodin is like, yeah, he's, I just saw him in the bathroom with a bunch of money or something oh, like that. Oh, that's right. And you're like, oh my God, what? Yeah, because the mother's like, what are you doing with my son? Right. He's like, I ran into him in the bathroom. He had all this money. Where does Clifford get all that money from? I don't know. The other bad, the other really bad trans joke in this movie is when Mary Steenburgen is like, you're a phony and I can spot a phony from a mile away. And then these two trans men with deep voices. Yes, walk that's behind another yeah. weird bit. And they're like, uh, which way to 8th Street? Yeah, they're like, hey, honey, where are we? And she's like, oh, right over there, ma'am, or whatever. And you're like, uh-huh, we we, we get it. But it's like, set up like an airplane gag where it goes like, nice beaver, and then you see a beaver. Sure, it's- um, Like, the, the movie implies that trans people are phonies. Uh well they're fuck that they're they're, they're like they're drag queens right, right yeah okay yeah. but, but none, I mean yeah but nonetheless it is I don't know if they are I mean I feel like this is from a time where they were like sure. oh all right. trans where, people are drag queens. exactly where That's they, what they were like. considered one and the same right but um beyond that it's also just tonally it's like right are we in an airplane movie or are we in like a Beethoven movie like right. is this sort of a thing about a grounded guy's life getting fucked up by a problematic kid right or is this like a just a wacky throw jokes every one minute you know like right like just like zap 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 uh like screwball right. comedy well it, there's a third option are we in hell are we all <laughs> sharing in a common mass delusion this movie is definitely set in hell it is it's a very hellish and film. then it descends into hell at the end <laughs> right like the dinosaur stuff <laughs> is Okay, so Martin gets arrested. Uh, yes, and uh, you know, really, it looks like almost Clifford's sort of winning now, right? Because it is they're yeah. competing against each other. Clifford gets to go home with the girl, 
and he's eating a bunch of sugary cereal and, and yeah, garbage. I don't like any of that. Clifford's game it's is really just... gross. Yeah. yeah uh, does he want to fuck the? No. Yes. I don't know. I think he does. Yes. <laughs> oh boy. But Grodin comes home. He covers for Clifford. They go back to his apartment. He's he's just he can't he can't deal anymore. He's like really now starting to lose it. That's when you get the the uh, speech I uh, I quoted at the top of the episode. He's like, just act like a human. What right. is wrong with you? Why would you do this? Which is a great moment for Grodin. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Watching Grodin disintegrate. I honestly almost wish it went a little further in that direction I do too. too. I really wish that at the end of this movie, Grodin strangled him to death or something. This movie almost has a weird slow burn. Like, it takes 45 minutes before stuff starts right, getting Right, because it's really kind of light and cute for a while. Right. And then, and then, of course, and there's also that beginning bit, you know, the 2050 stuff that's also pretty light and cute. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, okay, this is a kid's movie. I get it. Right. And then suddenly, he, I mean, he has ruined Charles Grodin's life. Yes. He lo- loses his job. He well, loses his girlfriend. Yeah. He, yeah. he blows up his house practically. <laughs> no, carry on. Well, all right. So we'll just we'll get through it because again, it's just like we're gotta we gotta get to that last scene, right? That's the big yeah. that's the big point. So where it becomes uh, a German expressionist. <laughs> oh my god, it's so crazy. Right. But anyway, so Grodin, um, basically he yells at Clifford, sends him to his room. Clifford runs away. Right? He sees the note. He chases him to the train station. Gets on the train. Clifford's pulled a fast one on him. He puts uh, his Polaroid over the milk carton to set himself up as a lost child. Oh, yeah. yeah God. That's uh, also weird. Yeah. Uh, Grodin ends up in San Francisco. But Clifford, Clifford stays switching. behind. Yep. Yeah. And then yeah. throws a party right. at it's his house. It's a moment where you kids. think, yeah. like, you do for a second think, like, oh, now here we come to the kid movie reversal where Clifford realizes he's gone too far and he works to fix everything. No. Nope. No, Grodin gets on the train to San Francisco, and then we're, it's revealed, like, Clifford's not on that train. He was just getting rid of him. Right. And he's having a fun dance sequence. Then he invites a bunch of teenagers to their house. And then when Grodin gets home, Clifford's tied like like a fucking, like, a, like a Dudley Do-Right heroine would be tied to the train tracks, like his arms and legs behind him. And he's like, oh, these kids, I was going to run away, but then I thought better of it, and these kids came and they tied me up. Sure. And Grodin's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. None of this. Uh, also, we yeah. skipped over real quick. I just uh, Let's not forget the uh, problematic scene of the boss and Mary Steenberg. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, basically, a weird just rape scene in the middle of this movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's trying to date rape her. Or, I mean, he's oh. trying to... He won't take no for an answer, He, like, slut shames her, too. Yeah, he gives it's her so a bad. necklace, and she's like, oh, thanks. And then he's, like, trying to fuck her, and she's like, I was never going to, like, I don't even like your necklace. She tries to take it off. That's one bit I like when she's stuck having this face. conversation yeah. with the neck around her face and it lasts for like two minutes. The neck around her face. The necklace around her face. The neck around her face. Yes. But then... Um, I, I just actually want to say, yeah. because we're talking about this like kind of humor with like gay jokes, right? Yep. And just like weird, rapey kind of stuff. Like You mean was, like bad humor? Yeah, yeah, bad humor. This right. was the stuff that unfortunately our generation sort of grew up on a little bit. Yeah, I mean, yes, there were, uh, especially like the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of comedies were just about like, this guy's normal, isn't everyone else in the world weird? And the other people who were weird were like, uh, coded as, uh, you know, just any other type of person. Yep, yep. I, I just, I'll say on the record that I'm glad that that is not 
acceptable sort of thing anymore. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And I hope that it affects younger generations so that we get to a better place. Oh, you're hoping Clifford uh, has a huge impact on younger generations? No, no, just that new comedies, new movies sure. don't have jokes and garbage like this movie has. But Ben, I love you, it. You do like this movie. I love it. So <laughs> so why do you like the movie? Cuz I will say I didn't really like the movie, but I certainly was fascinated by it. It's a curio. Yeah, it's an interesting curio. Yeah. I couldn't kind of couldn't believe what I was watching. I will tell you, and this is actually really, uh, fuck. All right, fine. Are you about to cry? My dad is a lot like Charles Grodin, and I'm a lot like Clifford. Our, that relationship- that makes, that makes a ton of sense. That you're everything seeing, you've said about your dad. Yeah, yeah. My dad is sort of a grouchy guy who's like quick to sort of lose his cool, uh-huh. and I was such a monster as a kid. Well, I bet you were. I was always- fucking with him because I thought it was so funny to get him mad. Wow. So that is part of why I think I love this movie so yeah. much. But I, I mean, would. Just to give you an example, I used to torture my dad where he would like try to get me to do chores mm-hmm. and I was watching a lot of SNL reruns at the time so I, I was always do Dana Carvey's uh, Bush like not gonna do it and I would like <laughs> Pretty young, just tell my dad so, no annoying. to his face when he asked me to take the garbage out by like quoting this Bush impression. Not gonna do it. Not, not gonna, gonna do it. Do it. Be like, ben, not well, gonna. ben, you 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 really have you gotta take the not gonna do it. He'd be like, you gotta just so you you know you gotta have, be responsible, help out. Not gonna do it. and he would just like lose his fucking mind, can and then we, I would laugh. Can we? Um, I know we pitched Blank Check Babies in the past as an animated series. Yeah. About us in the playpen. Right. Um, I, I think we got to do like The Adventures of Young Ben as an animated series. I'd love to watch a cartoon show where Ben, with his current grown-up voice, like Life with Louis style, <laughs> plays a little cartoon Ben on a dirt bike, <laughs> like Bobby's World. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. That show sounds amazing. It would be it would be interesting. I I could pitch a couple of episodes. One is finding porn in the woods. <laughs> What are the other episodes? Uh, one would be um, by actually starting a trash fire. Sure, I can see that. Um, uh, what would be uh, stealing a Robitussin and drinking a bunch of it behind a cost cutters? Um, you know, just growing up stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I also understand why you like Gummo so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the thing though. But you're, you're not as crazy as that. Like no. your childhood was actually fairly normal. Yeah, somewhat. But you were just kind of acting out. But when you saw like Gummo, you're like, yeah, that's my people. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So the, so I think uh, we've we pretty much yeah. I mean, Dabney Coleman. She throws his rug out a window. He flips out. He gets a new rug with a ponytail. Right. He uh, growed in super late to this presentation. He hasn't shaved. He's starting to look mangy. And uh, David, you notice uh, what he's carrying around to to you know present like w- the f- the files that the presentation are yep. on. Yep. It's on a Psyquist. It's on a Psyquist. Which Great. is a like archaic form of having it basically like an external hard drive. Hell's yeah. It yeah, it was it was kind of like a floppy disk but it was bigger. Right. <laughs> Big floppy disk. Yeah. And then somehow Clifford sabotaged that. He fucking sabotaged. He blows up the he model. robs Los Angeles of a functional public transportation it's all system. <laughs> then he's Gordon snaps and right. decides to take him to Dinosaur World in the middle of the night. But but when Dominic Coleman's like 
what happened here? He's like, I'm fired, right? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, no, Grodin actually is just like, it was me. Because he's lost it. He's just like. Right. He's broken so thoroughly that he's gone all the way back to calm. Right. And he's just like, it becomes a nihilist. He's like, I'm going to kill that boy. Right. And this really reminds me of my dad because he would just be like, yeah. Yeah. It's a funny joke, Ben. Good stuff. He never gave you comedy points. That's what this is about. It was all about the comedy Your points. Your dad never gave you comedy points. Yeah. You just wanted those sweet, sweet comedy points. Yeah. No, right. He God takes them. Come on. Let's yeah. just do the final thing. The dinosaur right. All world. All right. So thing. Grodin kidnaps Clifford and he takes him to finally Dino World, right? In 50% the middle of, of the, the movie's budget night. spent yeah. on these eight Holy minutes, right? Holy shit. It's crazy. They go big on Dino World. Dino World is basically like a giant animatronic ride, I guess, that you can take. It's supposed to be the La Brea Tar Pits, right? But it's it's the, like, yeah, the world's like longest to it or whatever. roller coaster that's also kind of a dark story ride. It's kind of a, it's, a, it's certainly a dark ride. It's right. also not repeatable. No. It's also like, <laughs> like what? It's also crappy. But <laughs> like, also like when they get to Dino World, it's like these huge map paintings. Like the park itself mm-hmm. is fucking humongous. It's massive. Yeah. And it, it really well designed. Yeah. I like all this stuff visually. But like the movie now yeah, becomes I don't disagree like, with you actually. You know, these like very bizarre expressionistic images. Uh like a lot of black shadows and smoke. And these odd robot creatures, and yep. the music starts getting like insane. He puts him through the ride, and Clifford's just like, finally, Love great. It. Then he's like, "You have fun," and then he like accelerates him. Why through don't the we ride. do it again, Clifford? And then yeah. he puts him into like hyperdrive or whatever he says. Right. Starts hurting. Him. Uh, and the robot, the T Rex, disintegrates and turns into like an angry skeleton. All oh, right, that's the other part. It's one of those rides where there's like a game where you have the laser and you have to kill the yeah. And then if you don't do that, that you might die. Right. Then <laughs> like starts, you might fall it into it. catches this. on fire? I don't it's know. Very unclear. It's a strange nightmarish sequence that goes on yeah. for a while. Yes. Weirdly, I don't what I don't like is that when it this ride goes wrong, Grodin seems to try to fix it. I don't know why he's trying to fix it. He wants the kid dead. He wants the kid dead. He's I mean, got nothing to lose. Well, anymore. no, there is actually it's a great reference to like a really early comedy bit that's a Steve Allen bit, which is uh like uh, Clifford's hanging off the ride, like about to fall into the T-Rex's mouth. Yeah, uh-huh. And he's like, help me, help me. And he's like, I'm thinking it over, which is like the reference to like your money or your life. He's like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Cronin's delivery on that line is really so good. So good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, he does save fucking Clifford, which honestly, wouldn't have you liked the movie better if he died? A hundred percent. I would have liked it. And then you cut to the future, and he's like, but wait, you died? And he's like, yep. And it's like, well, how are you here? And he's like, I don't know. Don't worry about it. I'm not exaggerating. I, if that's how the movie ended, I would give it an A. Yeah. <laughs> Instead. Like, it was like a, a like an evil ghost floated up into the sky, you know, yeah. like re- he was released finally. Right. I think it was the most formally inventive comedy of all time. Instead, the movie, in my opinion, kind of tanks itself by then yeah. ending, cutting yes. back to old Clifford and with and the, Corey Matthews with Corey, and, and he's like so did you ever like figure it out and he's like well I sent him a million letters of apology yeah, all of them returned all returned and print. then one day he asked me to be the ring bearer at his wedding how do you do that I don't know in his lack of communication yeah, and then then you know now I'm here and then the the, end. right the boy is like you know uh, you, you certainly I could never be as bad as you I'm not gonna try what are you gonna do son well I'm gonna write a 180 apology notes. Oh, good. And then Clifford walks away, and it turns out he's had the dinosaur in his pocket 
the whole time, and he goes like, "Mission accomplished." Which who, who cares? I don't yeah. fucking care about that. And then that. The, the insane twisted carnival music plays again, and the movie ends. <laughs> In the year twenty fifty, box office game. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you guys, though. Seriously. Oh, what a weird movie! And thank you. You're I mean, welcome. this is this is. Uh, I th- I think for you know there are a lot of Haas hogs in our fan base right people love Ben the hogs the hogs the hogs I, I think they're gonna eat this episode up because this is kind of an origin story it's true yeah I think this episode functions as like the beginning of Last Crusade yeah we're seeing how he got the scar we're seeing why he doesn't like snakes what's next Ben I don't oh man well King Ralph. It's a film I love. Yeah, fuck, the that's it. Next we're doing one. King Ralph. How next. did you never mention King I, Ralph? It's like before. immediately locked down. Of course, we're doing King Ralph next. <laughs> God. We should get Chase Mitchell back for that. I think he's moving. He to loves LA, King Ralph. He it's loves so good. King Ralph. Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. It's an American trying to be fancy. Yeah, I I uh, I was on a road trip recently. Back- From the director of Major League, another favorite of yours. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god, it makes you cry so hard. Uh, I was on a road trip uh, back from uh, uh, Toronto, and we were driving through like up upstate New York. Yeah. And we stopped at a pizza parlor to pee, and uh, they had uh, a King Ralph poster, inexplicably. Right. Like it wasn't like oh King was Ralph was up. filmed here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a lot of artwork of just like here's Jackie Robinson. Here are things in American history. And then just King Ralph, like someone who worked there was just like a big King Ralph stan. Anyway, box office game. Yeah. This movie cost about $20 million to make. Yep. It made seven domestic, oh zero I, elsewhere. I'll say uh, much higher than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised if this is one of those movies that made like $1 million. It made seven. Okay. Uh, on the weekend of April 1st, 1994, it opened number seven at the box office. They released this movie on million. April Fool's Day. They did. They did. Okay. It opened number seven, 2.5? 2.5 million. Okay. Uh, it lingered for a few weeks and then disappeared. It was an Orion release, but as we discussed, it was yep. like on the shelf for sure. years. Number one is a sequel to a movie I literally just mentioned. A sequel to a movie you literally just mentioned? Yes, that uh, opened number one this week, $7 million. Major League Two? Correct. Oh, right, right. <laughs> Major League Two, which is... The one that still has Sheen and Berenger, Berenger and Corbin Burnson, right? Like that's still got all the, the whole guys in back. It. Yeah. Um. Uh. That there it is. Yeah. Odd I, to open Clifford against it. Weirdly, actually. I always think better than the first, but maybe that's it. Was on Comedy Central more? I saw that one a lot. I, I don't know if I've ever seen Major League Two. I've seen Major League, and weirdly, I've seen Major League Back to the Minors, the third one. The Bacula have... one. Back in Bacula. <laughs> uh, Ben, what's your opinion on Major League Two? I don't. I think I've seen it. Wow. I've only seen the first one. There's a whole plot line, which, I mean, I think now might be pretty loaded, where Charlie Sheen tries to, like, reform and become, like, a, you know, respectable man. And sure. it's the big th- moment at the end where he puts the wild thing glasses back on and, like, unleashes the beast. I remember being very emotionally affected by that as a child. Anyway, that's number one at the box office. Cool. Number two is another kid's comedy. Mm. It's interesting. April was just the... Uh, and. It's uh, another sequel. Live action. Live action. It's not Problem Child 2. No. That'd be too perfect. It would be. Yeah. But I think we might have even talked about it on the... We certainly talked about the original. Uh, I definitely saw this in theaters. It's not Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. No, no. Think of just, you know, but it's, you know, a live action kids comedy sequel, Sports. Two sports. Mighty oh, Mighty Ducks, Ducks 2. D2, The Mighty Ducks. D2, The Mighty Ducks. The best of the franchise. Uh, yes, I would say so. No question. Uh, the only really good one, in my opinion. Yeah, it's the only one that really works as a movie. Um, 
it has made sixteen million dollars in two weeks. It's having a nice time over at the box office. Yeah. Number three is a pretty underrated Ron Howard comedy. A nice little movie that the paper. Yeah, that was shot in my mom's office. Yeah. And featured a lot of her coworkers and your favorite actor. Mikey Keaton. Yeah, not a bad movie. No, Keaton and uh, Howard should do a movie together again. It's a good I call. think it would help both of them. Gung Ho is not good, but p- the paper is good. They did four together or three. They did Gung Ho, they did Night Shift. They did Night Shift. That might and be the a, paper. That might be yeah. A. I thought they were a good team. The paper is good. Yeah. Um, Mikey, I love Mikey. It has made $12 million in three weeks on its way to 38 Nice little sort of just, you know, stuck yeah. along there. Number four, another comedy sequel. Who? Why did they open Clifford this week? It's I like the it. box office is crammed with comedy. Yeah. The third in a comedy franchise and final film. The third and final film, The Naked Gun 33? And a third. And a third. Yes. The final insult, yeah. which is the bad one. It's the worst one. Yeah, it's, it's still got some good shit in it. It has more successful jokes than most movies ever made. Yeah, I mean, look, they're great. That franchise is incredible. Also, a franchise where I would say the second one's the best. Might agree. Yeah, I, yeah. I sort of, I do mix them all up in my head. Though, I do too. A lot of, um, a lot of time. But God, number five is just a hilarious comedy about the Holocaust. <laughs> it's not a comedy. Oh God, <laughs> well, uh, it's not a comedy. No, you're no, not. No. You, okay, it, it had just one Best Picture. We we, we discussed it. It's on Schindler. The it's Schindler's it's list. Schindler. Uh, some other movies you Face got in the there. List. Face um, the list. You got Above the Rim. Two-pack basketball movie, Marlon Wayans. Uh, You got Thumbelina, the Don Bluth. Is that the final Don Bluth Studios? No, because Anastasia comes after this. Well, right, but that's when he's moved to Fox. Oh, oh, yes. Right, but the Pebble and the Penguin might be. These were MGM? This is when Bluth was at MGM, is that right? I don't know. I think he was floating around. He might have been a Warner Brothers. I can't remember. You know what Bluth's final film was, I saw Thumbelina in in theaters. Titan A.E., right? Yeah, and do you know who wrote Titan A.E.? We talked about this. The fucking tick guy and Joss Whedon. Yeah. It's great. Ben Edlund. Um, Four Weddings. My Papa Ben Edlund. Four Weddings is in there. Okay. Uh, 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 and a Funeral? Or is the, did the Funeral not make the end top funeral. 10? Uh, Guarding Tess. When Which they were a- like, Jessica Tandy. Like, no, no. I mean, no, it's Shirley MacLaine. It's isn't Shirley it? MacLaine. Yeah. And that movie is charming. I've never seen Who's the uh, Who's the co-star? <laughs> Nicolas Cage, baby. Oh, right, right. Yeah, it sounds good. It was when Nicolas Cage was capable of giving good comedic performances. Uh, I think that movie's charming. Austin Pendleton. I forget who else is in the cast. I like that movie. Anyway. Uh, yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire is still hanging out. Monkey Trouble. Philadelphia. Oh, Monkey Ace Trouble. Ace Ventura is still in there. Yeah. Monkey Trouble. The Piano, The Pelican Brief. We discovered, we, we re- discussed a recent movie that was like close to this time. I can't yeah. remember which one it was. Yeah, because the list came up recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it Blank Check? It must have been. Right. It's another yeah. 94 movie. Right. This is a big year for shitty kids. Yeah. Uh, in yeah seriously. Kind of a classic year for the Sociopathic bad... children. Yeah. And like that's kind of what our society was in the, in the mid-90s. Like that, that's what when advertisers start pitching directly to us. Yeah. And like movie studios start talking directly to us. And it's like, ha fuck parents. Am I right? Well, like you the know? whole Nickelodeon magazine campaign yeah. that was like you have to trick your parents into getting you a prescription. And a like, prescription. S- a subscription. But sometimes Nickelodeon Magazine was a prescription because you know, it was the cure for all ailments. Humiliating adults was yes. like kind of just crucial. And also gross shit. It was like stuff for kids looks like boogers or turds. So like your parents will vomit when they see you playing with it. And you don't tell them that it's actually chocolate. You know, like shit like that. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, it's the post-Garbage Pail Kids world we're living in. Yeah. Uh, that's it. That's it. That's all I got. End of Clifford, right? 
Yeah. Uh, ben, any final remarks? Yeah, Ben. Oh, I have well. one story I want to tell. I can do it before or after your final remarks. You go, please. Uh, just because we talked about him. I think I probably told you this, David. Mm-hmm. Martin Short did tell the best joke I've ever witnessed in my entire life. Which was, we were we were rehearsing the show, and they were having a, a camera problem, so we had some downtime. Yeah. And he walked over to our set, because all the sets on sitcoms are like built next to each other, right? Yeah. And just started entertaining uh, myself and uh, John Mulaney and Nassim Padrat. He's so uh, like filled with Hollywood stories. Mm-hmm. We try to prompt him, be like, what about Richard Pryor? Do you know Richard Pryor? And he go, well, Richard's interesting. And like he'd either do that or he'd do bits, right? He's like always doing bits, always trying to keep everyone entertained. So he sat down on the couch next to us on the set. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I'm just going to take a nap. And then he started doing impressions. And he was like, here's my impression of Mama Cass. And then he like pretended to eat a sandwich and then started choking and then spit it out and then started eating the sandwich again. Like he just started doing all these like tasteless, you know, like old Hollywood legend jokes. Uh-huh. And um, then someone, somehow Karen Carpenter got invoked, talking laterally off of Mama Cass. And he got serious. And he went, do you know uh, that the uh, house that Karen Carpenter died in, uh, it's still on the market. They tried to sell it. It was this beautiful mansion in the hills. They tried to sell it afterwards and no one wanted to buy it and it was you know it's originally like three million dollars and it's gone down over the years but it's they've still never sold it it's still on the market it's down to like three hundred thousand dollars now it's just there and Mulaney went wow so it's just no one wanted to sell it just because it was like creepy and he went no kitchen (laughs) it's pretty funny (laughs) it's really good and Mulaney sat there awestruck and he went Wait a second, that joke is reliant on someone asking the question. He went, but they always do. <laughs> and he went, how long have you been telling the joke? And he goes, I don't know, when did Karen Carpenter die? <laughs> this all sounds like a great conversation. And then he was like, you know, I've, he went, did you have to adjust the price of the house? He goes, I adjust for inflation a little bit, but it's important <laughs> that the price of the house at the end is low enough that people ask because they're thinking maybe I could buy it. Right, right. <laughs> so that's the best joke I've ever heard in my life. No kitchen. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, ben, what do you want to say? All right, final thoughts. Love Martin Short. Um, yeah, this was a revealing episode for me. Uh, <laughs> we love you, Ben. I love you, Ben. <laughs> I love you too, guys. You're the Martin Short of, of my heart. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I would just say um, I hope that we uh, have movies that are just as fun as this movie but don't have problematic jokes in it. Yeah, don't don't shit on other people. Ben, entire groups. These nineties movies that you're gonna pick are probably always gonna have a couple oh, stinkers in they're them. They're always gonna have some like ugh, kind Yeah, of I moments. can't wait to watch King Ralph and realize that it's the genesis of the all right movement or something. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> it's a it's about King Gamergate. Right. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, I, I will say too, I just I guess what it was is I as a kid, I'm realizing this now, aside from Steven Seagal, I was obsessed with nineties sketch. Comedic yes, actors, of yes. course, and, yeah, and I just yeah. loved all of those movies. That, yeah. and, and the weird thing is that they're not successful movies, no. really, for the most part. No. But anyway, fuck it. I it's it's it well, reminds me of being a kid, the '90s. You know, out of date technology, all the things I like. And I couldn't have said it better myself. Fuck it. Uh, what are we doing next, Griffin? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, this is so we're. By the time we get there, we'll have we'll have a we'll have a. We'll sense. know where we're going yeah, sure. when. It's, okay, so let's do that thing where we drop in now. Hey, tune in next week for. 
Wow. Can't wait. Oh, my God. That director oh. is what a choice. My my Lord, how will we ever thread that needle? What like, bits will be revived? Their first movie, by the way, is interesting because uh, we should say the name of the first movie. Yes, their first movie, of course, was. Crazy when you think about Wait, it. It's interesting. Right? I mean, uh, the what context. And also, it came out at that in this year. Yes. Oh, and the year, of course, was. Which I mean, what what's it even say about that year? Right? A lot, but a later, lot, a lot later. But the president of that year was. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, who can forget that that year, People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive was. And of course, we should have a moment of silence for the tragedy that happened. And also the Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to... Okay, good. Right? Are we done? Yes. <laughs> Keep doing that. Yes. Thank you for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Margot Kidder's age at the time was... <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't help it. Uh, thanks <laughs> to all the blankies out there. Check our Reddit. Uh... Yeah, check or peep our Twitter, you know. Thanks to Ange for doing the social media. Thanks to, uh... Uh, what is this? Thank everybody. <laughs> I don't fucking know. All right, great. Uh, Pat Reynolds, it was a great time. Thanks to... Love Pat Reynolds. Lane Love Montgomery. Ange. We don't thank everyone enough. Love them all. Uh, and as always... This has been a UCB Comedy production. Check out our other shows on the UCB Comedy Podcast Network. 